We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com to get started. Dude, I was I was at these companies. I got lectured by fucking Joe Gebby at my first YC dinner. It was it wasn't these things weren't obvious from day one. They absolutely were not. I worked at Uber. I was there. I worked there. Okay, I saw so in go vertical. I saw China. Yeah, and, you, and you joined it after they stole the Lyft business model, which was the UberX one. Before that, it was basically black cars. It didn't well, take no, off until then. You are making so much money. All my friends were using it. I have not one friend who uses crypto. Not one. Who who here has used crypto? I took three Ubers just today. Who here has used crypto today? SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. And it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Moment of Zen. We're joined with a, a full house today. We have returning guest Amjad Masad of Replit. Uh, we have our very good friend Flo, who we name checked in our episode uh, with Amjad uh, about the uh, the AGI discussion or AI discussion. We'll, we'll get into that. And then we have Nathan Lebenz, uh, who is my co-host for a new AI show we're launching called The Cognitive Revolution. Uh, so uh, Nathan, by, by way of introduction, why don't you give a very brief intro to what is the cognitive revolution, and then we'll have uh, um, John and Flo get into it, get into it a bit as well. Yeah, you bet. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on the uh, group chat finally, where all the private discussions happen. And uh, I do expect I'll get a little pushback on my grandiosity in terms of what I'm expecting for the next few years. But when I think of the cognitive revolution, you know, right now what I'm trying to do is zoom out as far as possible survey the landscape, and kind of act as a technology scout. And that really means more and more just an AI scout. What I'm seeing is that really a few core techniques, transformers, reinforcement learning, you know, a whole lot of compute, are really working in every area where they are applied. And so a few of those areas have come to the public consciousness, like the art creation, and of course, Chad TPT over the last couple of months. But there's the same phenomenon happening really across all domains, including things as powerful and transformative as biology and even potentially managing fusion reactors. 
So I see that in general, problem solving and information processing is gradually becoming something that machines can do. And we're very eager, it seems in most cases, to shift the burden of that work to the AIs. And so my kind of new base case, and the reason that I'm so excited about starting a podcast and talking to the people that are building on the frontier of this technology right now, is that I think we're going to see a pretty dramatic shift over the next few years. And we can debate you know, if that two, five, ten, 10, uh, whatever. But I think we're going to see a great convergence of a lot of different AI advances that suddenly all come together and really make a tremendous impact on modern life. And so calling it the cognitive revolution, because I think the changes that we'll see are going to be every bit as transformative as what we saw. We weren't here to see it, but as our ancestors saw in the agricultural revolution, and of course, the industrial revolution, uh, I think life is going to be very, very different in the not too distant future. And that's before we even get into, you know, the really weird scenarios um, that could happen if, you know, AGI goes bad or anything like that. I'm really just, you know, trying to envision the kind of base case. And even that I find pretty weird and hard to envision. So I look forward to getting into that with you guys. Yeah. Flo, why don't you talk about how, how you see the AI moment from your perspective? I, I know that you have some takes on things that are overhyped, underhyped, but why don't you contextualize your, your perspective here? Yeah, I totally agree that everything Nathan said. Uh, I was grabbing dinner um, last night with an AI researcher who described what we're going through as what he calls the third great convergence. So he says, you know, the first one was 2012 with like the image that moment and deep learning uh, and all of AI turned into that. Uh, the second one was Transformers with the uh, attention is all you need paper in 2017. And then we're going through the third one since, you know, roughly 2022, you could think of those convergences as happening once every five years with large language models. So large language models, you know, ChatGPT is the most famous example. They're really good at manipulating languages, like language, like really, really, really good. And it just turns out that they're so good at it that uh, the moment you model out any task as a language task, which turns out you can model a lot of tasks with a language task, uh, it becomes really good at that as well. And so we're starting to use large language models for things ranging from Obviously, you can ask it questions, but it can also do a little bit of math. You, you know, we're starting to use it as a search engine. We're starting to use it to code. We're starting to use it in robotics as a sort of reasoning engine. And so I think that like that alone makes AI dramatically underhyped. And I say that knowing full well how hyped it is. Uh, I think even if we stop the progress and the discoveries that we've made right now, which will not stop they're going exponential. Even if we stop them right now, all of civilization, I think, is going to be dramatically impacted in the next 10 years. And then I think zooming out even further, yeah, I am, I am more and more a believer of, you know, the uh, AGI moment. My, my timelines are compressing rapidly, uh, meaning I actually believe that AGI is going to happen uh, sooner and sooner, and my concerns are slowly increasing. Um, so, you know, as a reminder of that, what AGI is, it's, you know, that uh, recursive loop of self-improvement, AGI become better and better, and so it ends up with an idea of one trillion. Um, I think that the steel man for it is that um, you know, we, we, and the reason why people are so worried is that Moore's law means that there won't be just one AGI. Moore's law means there will be a lot of AGIs. And so in the limit, anyone with a laptop has an AGI. And now the, the risk that uh, Elizabeth Kopsky uh, talks about is that it's impossible to align a single AGI, let alone a million AGIs. So we need to align it. We need to do that impossible thing a million times. Um, and to compound the risk, uh, the incentive to use that AGI are extremely high because until it blows up in your face, if it does, uh, it generates riches. Uh, so if you compare it to, imagine if anybody with soap could make a nuclear weapon, uh, and until the nuclear weapon uh, explodes, it actually generates gold. Right. So it's just it's just very hard to uh, regulate soap and 
forbidding anyone from putting their hands on soap, uh, and it's very hard uh, from preventing anyone to use that weapon because it generates gold for them. Um, I, I think episode three, I loved the conversation, by the way, in episode three about the rebuttals to, to this argument, which I think they're valid, right? Like at AGM, you were saying like, uh, you know, that that's a, a tale as old as time, right? Like the golem and Frankenstein, men are always worried that they will create what brings about their doom. 100%, it is, it is true, right? Um, I, I, I think though, sometimes we're right, right? Like the, the Black Death killed 50%, 30 to 50% of the, of the global population. There have been apocalyptic events, uh, before. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I believe you mentioned something like, you know, we don't, we don't understand the brain yet. We don't understand cognition. We don't understand consciousness. 100% true, but I, I don't think we need to understand create them. I think is, is the problem. I think humans uh, use and create technology all the time that they don't understand. Like we don't understand biology, we're able to breed new oranges, to breed new types of dogs. And I think in the same way, we don't really understand LLMs. They're actually being studied by researchers, and we didn't really build it. We evolved it more than anything. I think uh, stochastic gradient descent and training is, I think, more akin to evolution than it is to building something uh, from the top down. So anyway, that's not to say that I think like uh, we should like burn all the GPUs or whatnot, which I think is, is uh, what uh, Yudkovsky may prescribe. I, I just think it, it is something that is under-discussed. I think it is a real risk. And I, I, I just wish there was a lot more funding and attention brought to this issue. Was it SBF funding uh, alignment research or, you know, <laughs> uh, this stuff? Uh, Nathan is our resident. We're going to go uh, for the guilt by association thing, Dan. That's great. <laughs> Nathan is our effective uh, altruist um, representative today. We tried to get SBF. We couldn't get him this, this time, but uh, in, in the future. I'm John, why don't you jump in, share, share your reactions and, and your thoughts on, on the AI moment? Well, I, I, I think, uh, I do think it's a very, uh, special moment, um, in, in technology, uh, in general. Um, I think, uh, you know, ML and AI had a lot of false starts and a lot of, um, uh, uh, sort of semi-useful, uh, innovations, but, uh, you know, even even the like the deep mind uh, sort of the deep learning uh, innovation say say like when it started going ma- mainstream in the early 2010s um, was still like a very tedious uh, process. It was really hard and inaccessible for most people to do any sort of deep learning stuff. It was the stuff of uh, big labs, um, and for any particular task. You had to collect a lot of labeled data, and you had to build an, a, a, a machine learning model that is very specific to that one task. Um, what the transformer model brought um, is a kind of generality. So, in a way, there's a generality jump here. Um, I, I think if you if you go back to um, the early uh, era of AI, they would, they would probably think that the large language models that we have today are some kind of AGI. Because, you know, it's sort of this uh, boiling fragment phenomenon where like slowly we're increasing generality. There's n- not going to be any point of time we're going to say, ha, this is AGI. Um, I, I, I think, uh, you know, every jump is going to be like a significant jump of generality, but it's still going to feel somewhat slow. But but I think GPT two specifically, and then GPT three was this really big moment showing that for the first time you have a machine learning model that generalizes outside of its um, uh, uh, its distribution, uh, its, uh, its its training uh, distribution, right? So um, 
you know, with, with the cool thing about the, the fundamental cool thing about GPT uh, language models is that um, you know they can uh, they have a general knowledge about the world and they can do things that they haven't done before, right? So, for example, um, you can have a natural language that's not very well represented in the corpus, right? So, let's say that um, Arabic is not very well represented in the corpus, but there is, um, you know, enough ways of doing uh, recipes in English, then the language model would generalize from the English recipe making to, and will will be able to create Arabic recipes. So that form of, I think in the past, what I've called a transfer learning or whatever is happening on the fly. And you can program these models with what's called in-context learning or colloquially now we're calling prompting. Um, and that's a form of programming. Uh, before prompting, uh, there was no real way to change the model other than retraining it or fine-tuning it. And so for the first time, we can change the behavior of the model on the fly. And so one analogy I'd like, I like to give is that uh, pre-von Neumann machines computers were not programmable unless you changed their hardware. You literally had to change the circuitry in order to program them. Um, von Neumann created the stored program uh, machine, and that meant that you can write a program to change the behavior of the machine without changing the hardware. Um, with transformer-based language models, um, you can change the behavior of the model without changing its uh, weights and biases as parameters. So what that means is you have a lot of uh, non-machine learning practitioners able to build machine learning uh, apps um, on top of just uh, playing around in the OpenAI uh, playground, right? So um, so this, this creates a sort of a rising tide um, and uh, you know, makes everyone more productive makes uh, software a lot easier to create. Um, creating software used to mean learning all sorts of uh, arcane knowledge, and now you just have to write English to create a piece of software. You can create a meaningful piece of software. You can write a parser in 10 seconds. I can write a, a, a prompt, a very simple prompt, to chat GPT to parse a JSON file, not only any JSON file, I can parse a malformed JSON in ChatGPT uh, with a single question. It used to take me hours and weeks uh, and months in order to write it a full parser. So now you take something that was the capability of expert software engineers and you give it to everyone in the world. And I think the impact of that is going to be A, hugely deflationary. Uh, B, is going to like give people new superpowers. I think new type of entrepreneurship is on the rise, and we're seeing a lot of people that um, would have required companies and armies of people around them to build something useful are able to do it on their own. And I think we're going to see a new crop of winners and entrepreneurs and and sort of millionaires and billionaires coming out of uh, uh, this phenomenon. Um, and so, and, and it's, it's also like a fundamentally new way of of working and and automating things. Um, and the thing I'm most interested in is its impact on on on, on software. And I actually think that the, the impact on software is somewhat under 
um, hyped. Uh, I, th I think most of the hype today is about the art, and the art is sort of um, it's very interesting. We can, I'm sure we're going to get into that, but it is probably uh, a, a little overhyped, um, and um, and the thing that's underhyped is its impact uh, on software. And I think that's going to be totally mind blowing for us in the future. So I actually wanted to ask you about this, Amjad, because you know you run a very successful development tools company, right? That everyone knows. And so I, I think you have a lot of relevant experience here. And I was just thinking back, I mean, in my experience, when I first started coding, it was literally co like cracking open Kernigan and Ritchie and like either Vim and Emacs and like literally worrying about memory pointers. And we've gone up that up ramp, you know, ramp from assembly to compiled languages, to interpreted languages, to pseudo languages, to dev tools going from literally Vim and like set and off scripts to, well, Replit now, but in between various IDEs. And it all seemed very mad to even things like Stack Overflow, right? Which let's face it, is like how a lot of programmers do is like they go to Stack Overflow or Google for stuff, right? And like, I'm curious how you would quantify it. Do you think the step function that this is going to create or some of the tools we've already shipped inside Replit, how does that compare to the jump from something I've seen in my lifetime, I'm not that old, between the Kernigan and Ritchie of the world and modern IDEs? Do you, do you think it's actually like a step function difference or do you think that it's a step along the same continuum? How do you quantify it? You know, I'm a little conflicted about it. Like it, to me, it's obvious that there's a step function already happened. Like the copilot, um, ghostwriter uh, type tools are already a step function difference. Like, um, like you know, I, Andre Karpathy, one of the best software engineers in the world, was head of uh, AI at Tesla, uh, said that copilot writes eighty percent of his code. That's a top engineer, right? Eighty percent. That's a huge efficiency gain. We haven't seen that since the rise of, you know, open source was the last time we got this huge efficiency gain where you can NPM install, uh, you know, 10 hours of work, you know, it's, instead of doing it yourself. But I guess that's my question. What does it compare to, right? Because like there was also a step function going from worrying about memory pointers to Java's garbage, you know, garbage collection yeah. or going from, you know, compiled languages to, to, to interpreted languages. I'm curious, is it actually, I mean, sure, they're all step functions. But is it comparable in magnitude? Yeah. Because to me, it's like, I looked at the first coding examples from, from just to take slightly the bear case. And it's like, okay, it, it's, it saved me going to Stack Overflow and Googling four things and pasting four replies. But like, I don't know. It did, it, mind you, I asked it relatively simple queries. I didn't ask it super complicated stuff, but yeah. it didn't seem mind blowing to me. But that said, I don't ship a lot of production code these days. Yeah. So yeah. So, so I'm, I'm the, the, there are two modalities, right? So one modality is the, um, is the co-pilot modality, which is like, it's actually typing code for you. And that saves you a lot of typing um, and saves you a lot of looking up stuff as well. Um, and then there's the chat GPT sort of modality, which is you're asking it for information. And um, uh, did you know that Stack Overflow traffic month over month is down 12%? Oh, that's a great factoid. Fascinating. Yeah. that's It's amazing that this thing is already having an impact on, on stuff like real products in the world. Um, so, so I, I think the so, sort of the um, the combination of these two things is a, is 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 a kind of a big step function, and they're gonna they're gonna get better and better over time. The thing that I um, uh, the the thing that that's more interesting is that I think we're just at the early innings of it. Or so so whether it's th there's like a lot of multiple step functions, or are we at the sort of shoulder of an exponential curve here? Um, so if we are at the like beginning of an exponential curve, then it is not a step function improvement; it's actually another S curve entirely together, right? 
And so if it's another S-curve, what does that look like? And where does that lead us? Um, and, and so, I mean, that's a big question. I like, I think there's a lot more to do, but, but and so there's a lot more efficiency gains here. Um, but it, it might be, it, it might be an entirely different game that we're entering. I'm John. I saw a news report today, you know, you know how much you can believe that, but, uh, a thousand contractors had been hired by open AI to be teaching chat GPT programming. What, what does that actually mean? If assume, assume it's true for a second, but what are they, what are those contractors doing? Is it prompt engineering and then giving it feedback? You got this right. You got this wrong, telling it what it got wrong or like, ha, ha, obviously you have a, a product in the space. So I'd be curious what, what that actually means. Yeah. So, um, I, I think the main thing that, uh, become really important in the, uh, way we're doing large language models. So the way large language models, LLMs for short, uh, work is that they are pre-trained. And so what pre-training is, uh, you literally like throw the internet at it. You like take the entire corpus of the internet and you make that, uh, model learn how to predict the next word, basically the next token. Um, so this, um, uh, optimizing function, which is like, uh, let's see if the large logger model is actually good at predicting the next word. Uh, and if, uh, you know, and then you update the model to make it better and better at predicting the next word, um, it becomes actually, it has all this emergent intelligence because of just as trying to predict the next word. Similar, similar uh, to that code, it's just trying to predict the next token, the next uh, syntax in, in the code. So that's the main thing large language models are trained on. This is the pre-training step. And by the way, it's amazing that we have all this emergence, emergent intelligence just from the capability of predicting the next token. Uh, but a, a, more, a, a newer game in town, it's called reinforcement learning from human feedback. So RLHF for short. And what that means is you're trying, you're uh, creating a new optimizing function. And that optimizing function is basically um, whenever the AI does uh, a, a prediction, um, it is asking the question whether that prediction aligns with a human preference. So the human gives uh, an instruction to the large language model. And the large language models uh, sometimes don't follow that instruction they often ignore it and they hallucinate or they do something unexpected um, because they're predicting that's what's going to come next. You have to understand these are prediction engines. So they look at whatever you gave it. It was like, oh, this looks like a Reddit threat and then starts talking about Reddit, right? So you've all seen that. RLHF makes it so that it actually listens to you. And the way it listens to you is basically when it listens, to, when it does what it's supposed to do, you, you know, you give it a cookie. You say, you know, you've done a good job. When it doesn't uh, do what it's supposed to do, you kind of give it a, a slap on the wrist, right? And you do that process over and over again, and then the language model becomes more aligned, uh, meaning it listens uh, to us a lot better. So RLHF created this new demand for a new kind of data, the kind of labeled data. So the cool thing about pre-training is, uh, unsupervised data, meaning you don't have to label the data. And that created a very interesting dynamic. 
But we're actually, in a way, RLHF brings us back to the earlier um, sort of part of machine learning where now you're actually having to supervise its training. And so you need humans to be using ChatGPT and giving it feedback and slapping of the wrist or giving it a cookie every time it does something good or not. And and this is going to um, give a data advantage to uh, companies with a product that people are using. Part of the reason ChatGPT is free uh, is because they're collecting a lot of RLHF feedback. Every time you give it a thumbs up, thumbs down, you're giving it a cookie or a slapper on the wrist. Um, and in, in addition to that, uh, OpenAI decided to go and get source higher quality data by actually paying people to be a lot more descriptive in the reward function that they're giving it instead of just a, a thumbs up, uh, thumbs down. Interesting. It's it's so my experience with it, and I'm not an engineer, um, but I, I actually asked it to build me a web client for Farcaster, and so I asked it to build a Python Flask app, and I went through, and there were some issues, and I prompted it, and within I'd say about 15 minutes, probably 10 to 12 prompts, it, it had a working client that was on my local machine, and I thought that was that was pretty eye opening, but going back to the point before it feels like it's it's going to make the 10x engineer a 100x engineer in the sense that there's still a base level of you need to be able to guide it in the right direction it's a tool and so for the person who already has the skill level or the talent it, it's going to be a, a you know increasing the advantage whereas for maybe the mediocre engineer it doesn't really make a huge difference and or maybe they just lose their job completely like i'd be curious how you guys think about Think of it as a as a as a rising tide lifting all boats. So I agree. I think like the 10x engineer is going to become a 100x engineer. I think the 1x engineer will become a 10x engineer. And I think to answer your question earlier, GM about is that a, a new step change? I think folks who were not engineers before will become engineers and be able to perform simple tasks at first and more and more complicated ones. Uh, you are starting to see experiments out there where it's not just you ask, "Hey, how do I sort an array and other engineering tasks like that to GPT-3?" It's actually you ask. Uh, natural language tasks, like the kind of thing that you would enter in your task tracker. And uh, if it's a simple task, at least right now, uh, the models can perform then and end to end. So it's like, hey, change the copy in that button, move it to the left, make it green, and so on and so forth. Like that is something that, that this can change. So yeah, I, I generally 100% agree, Amjad, that like code right now to me is the crown jewel of this AI revolution that we're having. Like everybody is talking about image generation and copy generation, and that's fine, but that's not what the GDP is made of. I think engineers is a much larger slice of the GDP, and, and I agree that that's going to take that next tool. The other thing about code that's sort of underrated is that it is the window for the LLM to do more interesting things in the world. So one of the main criticism for LLMs is that A, that they're like not good at math, they're not good at some basic reasoning, and B, that their knowledge is not up-to-date. If you give the LLM the ability to, a, to write uh, a piece of code, uh, it can do better arithmetic. So there's a there's a, a famous prompt engineer. Uh, his name is Riley Goodside. He prompted GPT-3 to know that it's bad at arithmetic. It starts with, you're GPT-3, you're bad at math. Whatever you need to do math, you have to write a Python program. And then, um, and then I took that and I made the Python program actually execute in, in Replit and pass it back to the prompt. And that uh, that went viral. Um, and basically, um, what it shows is that um, 
large language models can use tools. So now you equipped a large language model with the ability to write code. It can do math, it can run data, but it can call APIs, right? So you can also tell it your large language model. You don't know anything about the current events. And so any anytime someone asks you about a current event, you have to go search Bing. You have to go get the top results from Bing and, and learn from that. Um, and so slowly your uh, coding becomes its window in order to um, uh, to gain more tools and, and more knowledge. And that's like a human, right? That's what humans do. We use tools in order to become more intelligent, more knowledgeable, more productive. I think there's kind of a third wave on both the coding modalities and also on the training that are worth highlighting. One really interesting experiment that I just saw, this is literally from just like last weekend, it was called LLMs are all you need for backend. And basically they replace all the code on the backend with just a call to a language model. And the language model basically pretends to be the entire app. So they showed a couple of examples of this, like a to-do list where there is nothing else except the language model, but the language model maintains your to-do list. And then what that allows you to do is just send arbitrary requests into the language model, like delete everything that I added the last Tuesday, or you know, add three things, but have them in a certain order. And there needs to be no code to do that. The And this is another thing that Riley has really pioneered and is a great follow on Twitter to see the specifics of the methods for this stuff. It can just maintain your whole to-do list in like a JSON string and manipulate that with literally no code at all. So we've kind of already, and this is, you know, Copilot's been out for what, like six months commercially? We've already gone from a kind of next-gen autocomplete to a your best friend that, you know, that has encyclopedic knowledge to literally just like there is no code at all for simple applications and the language model is just handling everything. So I think that's pretty fascinating. And I think one big change is like, there's just going to be a lot less code. I think that the models are going to kind of replace the code in a lot of places, a lot of gnarly things where people have coded up elaborate algorithms, heuristics, all that kind of stuff. It's um, it's just going to be replaced by like an intelligence that's kind of a black box that is going to be a big problem. But for a lot of these tasks, it will just kind of do them. And it will just kind of know what you mean when you say you want a certain you know set of changes to your to-do list that you know, nobody ever did have to code. Uh, briefly, too, on the on the training, you asked the question, Dan, about like the thousand contractors, and I think that's going to continue. I don't I don't think this is like a replacement dynamic, but it's also really worth looking into Anthropic's recent publication that they're calling Constitution AI, and it's kind of the next generation of reinforcement learning from human feedback. They're now doing reinforcement learning from AI feedback. So what they do is create what they call the constitution, which is a relatively short document. You can go read the one that they created. It's like two pages. And then they have the kind of core AI do a bunch of tasks. Then they have a supplemental AI that evaluates those tasks according to the constitution that they've provided, suggests improvements. They'll do like, you know, rounds of that and then retrain on the improved generations. This is now all AI beyond the, the initial couple page constitution. And they're able to stay competitive, at least in, you know, some pretty meaningful domains with the human feedback, just with the AI feedback. So that's another thing where we're kind of seeing like, boy, the expertise is kind of in there. It in some cases can already like coax it out of itself. 
And, you know, I think those contractors are, their jobs are safe for now, but, um, you know, a couple of years from now, I don't, I don't know. It's really hard to predict. I think it's interesting also figuring out, I'm not sure whether uh, AI is going to replace the code, like we're going to run models instead of running code or whether it's going to write the code. Um, I, I do agree with Amjad that these models have a weakness right now, which is that they, they suck at systematic thinking. So for example, you can give them uh, this uh, a task of, hey, pass this date instead of having it go uh, day, month, year, have it go month, day, year, right? And if you give it enough examples, GPT-3 will succeed at this task something like 99.8% of the time, but it will fail 0.2% of the time, um, which shows that it is, it is succeeding enough that it kind of understands the task, but it's not thinking about the task in a systematic way. So the other weakness of these models is that they cost a fortune to run. Like they're very, very expensive. And here again, Mozilla is going to be on your side. It's always going to be more expensive to, run, to, to use a large language model to uh, pass a date than it is to run a piece of code. So I, I think we're like in this very interesting time right now where like nobody really knows how these things will shake out. But I think that, again, these AIs will learn how to use tools. And I think that on some level, they will be small enough to discriminate to understand, hey, is this a task that I expect to perform a lot? Is this a task that I am performing a lot right now? And is this a task that benefits from more systematic thinking? If so, I'm going to write a piece of code to perform this task for me because it's going to be cheaper and more reliable and more systematic. And you think that the model will know that or is it the human guides it to saying, okay, this is not a good use of the model? I think there are ways, and I'm curious to hear Amzad's take on this, but I think there are ways to build systems that are either part of the model or upstream of the model such that the model would, would in a way know that. I, I just, I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, the example that you, I think, gave before these API requests or I was talking to a friend recently and, and he mentioned, ask, you know, GPT, George had GPT to find you a flight between San Francisco and Miami next Tuesday. It, it can't do that. Um, but like, what's, what's the difference between the LLM today and, and getting to getting that query done? Whereas, whereas Google, when you go to Google that, Google has it, you know, I think you could do it today. It. Like, I think you could do it today. Um, it just... You know, the, the thing that's uh, the sort of, and the reason why I'm saying this field is underhyped, um, this, despite it seeming like th that we we were now in this sort of, you know, people are saying we're, we're at the peak of the Carker hype cycle. So the hype cycle is like the sort of normal distribution-like thing. You have a peak, you go down, and then if the technology is actually useful, go up over time, right? And if, if you look at the NASDAQ, actually one fun tidbit, uh, it looks exactly like that uh, around the dot-com bubble was the peak and then goes down. There's like a bit of a trough and then goes slowly up over time. Um, and that what, that's what we've seen with the sort of internet startups as, as the sort of hype cycle. And um, we've well, had it three actually, times in crypto. Yeah, I, I crypto uh, uh, possibly we're in, this, we're in this trough right now. But the I actually think that... that uh, I don't think the hype cycle model actually is capturing what's happening here. Um, I actually think that the sort of engineering is like lagging way behind of the capability. It's just, it's kind of frustrating to me because like I'm working on Reflet, working really hard to build uh, some LLM uh, into, into Reflet capability. So we have the Ghostwriter product, but I feel like we're all scratching the surface. Like there's so much to do. I think tool usage is possible today it's possible to build a chat gpt that has a python interpreter on the side that has a search engine on another side um but nobody's really built it i think it's possible to do with just pure prompt engineering 
But if you want to do RLHF or fine tuning in order to make that better, I think it will work really a lot better. So I, I think it is possible today to ask it a question like, um, book me a flight um, and uh, it going to kind of Google whatever, and then maybe writing a program, hitting an API and booking you a flight. I think that's totally possible today. Quick anecdote on that, because just this week I did a Replit bounty. I'll let you guys guess what my bounty value was. But what I asked for was a little app that would allow me to help automate routine meeting scheduling. So I've just started working with a friend's company that's in the executive assistant space. And, you know, they do this untold thousands of times a month, right? And it takes whatever, seven minutes each time to go go to the email thread, go to the calendar, consult, you know, come back, draft the email, send. It's not a huge deal, but we thought, boy, if we could bring that time down, you know, by a factor of 10, then I would save a lot of time. So I go on to Replit. I just write a couple of paragraphs. I'm like, all right, here's what I want. You know, I need this, you know, these inputs. And then I just need you to go ping the Calendly and then come back and draft the email. And I just got that back today. So it's a work in progress still. Uh, but, you know, it, it is working. Like it, it is, you know, it's not just theoretical. Like this is now instantiated. Um, so who wants to guess what my uh, Replit bounty was to get that done? I found it next. You've, I'm sorry, you've overbid. 50 bucks is the actual answer. 50 bucks. Right. Uh, and I've got a working, you know, anybody can access it, Replit, you know, where you can just put in a couple inputs and next thing you know, you've got a, a scheduling email. Yeah, n n not to turn this podcast into a replete ad, like fully unaffiliated, I am not an investor, unfortunately, but uh, yeah, well, I'm also using uh, replete bounties more and more and it's, it's a killer. Uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll also at TeamFlow, uh, doodling on things like that. And it's insane, like the, the results that you can get by uh, feeding a bunch of tools to a lot of good model. I actually did my first Replit bounty this weekend. I am also unaffiliated. Oh, was it good? He hasn't finished it yet. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, and my hair is growing back since I stopped using Replit. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, I mean, um, just to tie, tie, tie in that conversation, well, I think one of the ways we're thinking about bounties and the reason why we started thinking about the world th this way is that I'm actually like, you know, uh, sort of a crypto canon, but um, the sovereign individual uh, had a description in it that talks about the sort of the future of work in a way. And it, it talks about how AI, crypto, sort of the future of the internet would support this sort of world where, you know, uh, people are less full-time employed. They're more like freelancers. They're able to jump from work to work. They're able to construct companies on the fly and kind of dissolve them right after the work is done. And, um, and, and th th that's been the picture in my mind for a long time. And I think for the first time, it's really possible. All these technologies are maturing in a way that allows this new crop of entrepreneurs to be able to be hyper productive and be able to get things done super quickly and super cheaply. Um, and, uh, you know, when we talk to uh, younger programmers, like almost without fail, their ambition is no longer to join 
Microsoft or Facebook or, or whatever. They, they, they want to build businesses. They want to make money. They want to go into freelancing. They want to be like this free spirit. They want to build uh, a career that is like freedom maximizing. Um, and I, I, th- I think having the ability to use uh, like uh, sort of uh, an army of AI assistants and you know, being really powered, supercharged by this technology will give people uh, amazing opportunities um, in the future. Um, and the, the cool thing about it is that AI is infused in every everything that we do. So we have this new um, feature where once a bounty hunter accepts a bounty, there's a one-click to generate a project. So we'll give the AI the first pass at making the project. And then we give the sort of resulting code to the uh, to the bounty hunter. And the way we generate the code, basically, we ask, we give GPT-3, we tell it, like, here's the description of the bounty. Uh, give us a file system that you think would, like, fit this. And we'll give us a, the file system. And then the human would look at it. It was like, oh, the files kind of look right. Um, and then uh, GPT-3 will go file by file, try to generate the, the, uh, the code. Um, and then uh, the next step, we actually try to compile all the code. And then if it doesn't compile, we'll take that error and we uh, loop it back into GPT-3 and we ask it like, hey, do another iteration on that. There's an error. And it does better and better every time. Um, right now, we were testing it with a few bounty hunters. They said it done 50% of the work. Um, and so 50% is huge amount. I don't know if that's the actual number that we're going to end up with maybe so that the trials were kind of skewed in some extent. But I think it's pretty easy for us to get to a point where we can get you from a project description to 50% scaffold of the project. And that really unlocks a ton of productivity. But to be clear, is that the ChatGPT thing or is that the bounty model for hiring software engineers that you're talking about? Because it well, seems uh, as if you're invoking uh, well, I, I think it's, it's, it's sort of combined, right? So basically you put in a bounty into Replit we give ChatGPT or GPT in general the first pass at it. And then the resulting code is not going to be complete yet. We'll kind of give it to a human to kind of finalize it. Yeah, I, I think that just like the PC was a, a tool of, of sort of great individual empowerment, I think you're right that AI is going to give even more leverage to the individual. And I think like code let companies like WhatsApp sell for like 20 billion with like, I think like 40 or 50 people. I think you're right. I think we're going to see one billion, ten billion, maybe one trillion dollar company in you know a decade or so, uh, uh, with perhaps one or two people. I totally agree with that. Uh, I've actually been hoping for someone to come up. Man, again, this is turning into a rocket ad, but I was hoping for someone to come up with this kind of like bounty system. I wrote a, a Google Doc. Uh, I think I sent it to you, I'm like four or five years ago that I ended up a piece for some reason. Um, it, it was a, a read from some experience I had at Uber where we ran the experiment of paying people for their time versus paying people for the, the tasks, right? And people whom we paid for the task were costing us less money and making more money. And at the core of that seemingly uh, it, it, uh, mathematical impossibility um, it, it is the fact that when you pay people by the task, they are incentivized to hustle and to find inefficiencies and to perform the task. And so, again, in this example, it was paying people to charge scooters. And so, when we paid them by uh, the hour, they were costing us um, uh, more per scooter and making less per hour than if we paid them to charge uh, a scooter. So I was actually meaning uh, to 
I wanted someone to build that for code because I was like, man, if you pay software engineers by the ticket, I think you would see a lot fewer REST investors and you would actually see 10x engineers making 10x the salary. I think if you really believe in a 10x engineer, which I do, uh, I think you should see software engineers make $10 million a year at, at big companies and you don't see that. And conversely, you see uh, people who I call uh, professional coffee bribers uh, who just REST invest and who make 500k uh, a year packages. Um, so I'm very excited by the potential here. I think that's totally not going to work, by the way. By the way, the bounty system is one of the parts of Web3 that totally doesn't fucking work. There's entire companies that are based around bounties and those infra companies that are based around paying someone a bounty to do a thing are always like the ones that you have to like route around and somehow use the product without it. I mean, think about it. Do you pay anybody in your company in bounties? No. Would you? Would a 10x engineer who actually wants to make like generational wealth, we're talking $100 million exits, would they sit there and do basically mechanical Turk for coding all day? Or would they actually... I mean, you're, you're creating a, an, arbitra an arbitrary binary duality between REST investors and people working like coding chipmunks on, on bounties, right? But the reality is that most coders who make lots of wealth, it's neither one nor the other, right? It's people who actually do work their asses off, but it's with some sort of committed product in which they have an overarching design ethos, right? Anyway, well, I don't know if we have to go into the whole rap rabbit hole, so to speak, of the bounty thing, but I don't know. It's just it's funny. It's one of the weirdest aspects of Web3 that I think is one thing that the ecosystem is hung up on. And well, I think, well, not, I certainly don't think that the balance system is going to replace employment. I do believe it's going to take over like little by little. It's going to nibble on the margin for like the, the very low ambiguity tasks. And either way, Antonio, yeah, I, I do spend well, probably a thousand dollars plus a month in, in, as a consumer in balance system and it's, it's called Uber, right? So the balance system has already taken over transportation, not as big. Yeah. And I think like the coast theory of the firm, I don't know, like I, I we, we have that. an eight person. So I think again? it's super interesting. Just give a like cursory explanation. Yeah, so, so you know, there's this whole kind of theory of like you know the the firm that you you bring people together, you you kind of get them to get organized within a company, and you have the set of goals, and that's actually the most productive unit of work. Versus if you move to a more decentralized model where everyone is a freelancer or something even larger, right? Like there's a pretty optimal uh, size. And, and arguably, you could say that like the most disruptive change is probably going to happen at the, the startup level, the famous Amazon two pizza team uh, rule. And, and it's like trying to actually how, how you organize your company to like get the maximum amount of efficiency. Out. And, and within Silicon Valley, you have, you know, it's been a business unit approach. You have the, the functional organization approach. And then most companies switch over the course of their time in existence. We did it multiple times at Coinbase. Um, but but going to the the bounty thing i i do think and tony as it relates to crypto i think a lot of these projects are, are protocols and i actually think one of the things that's made crypto um not make as much progress is a lot of people are kind of like field of dreams if you build it they will come they all think that they're vitalic and they all want to build a protocol and then they hope other people go through the work on top of it and if anything they end up having these like inflated tokens that they can use to pay bounties whereas i think what crypto hasn't had is a lot a lot of core just like teams that are actually executing against a product and a vision. And and so I, I think that that's how I would I would push it. And I, I I do think that the bounty thing is interesting in that going back to, you know, I'm a 12 person team now, we don't have any ops people. Like at Coinbase, by the time we were even this size, uh, we probably were like 20 plus person company and you had all these additional people doing all this stuff. Rippling has basically replaced like all of those initial back office hires. And what I'm hoping is like we're going to be able to get as far with like rippling and ramp and you know mercury and like all these tools which are not even ai but it like you know i built all these workflows that basically just handle what stuff used to be you know actual people in seats and now i'm wondering if some of this bounty stuff actually gets you the 
kind of like internal tool code or like the data analyst role that you previously had to do while you still have that John Carmack engineer in the front of the house actually thinking about scale and the actual product. Yeah, again, I do think the Bali system works for the very low ambiguity, very high measurability tasks. You, you, you mentioned uh, Cozy's theory of the film, which 100% is a huge part of the equation. Uh, another great book on the topic is uh, Gary Miller's uh, Managerial Dilemma, uh, which states that, uh, by the way, the film is another one of these technologies that we use that we don't quite understand. Um, but uh, Managerial Dilemma as a state, that's the reason, the reason why we have films is not just uh, for transaction costs and reducing friction of the transaction, it's also because of the, the, the psychological phenomenon that happens when someone uh, uh, works at a film. And so they, they, they feel more into the vision, more into the mission, and they, they almost end up um, uh, acting in a way irrationally. Uh, and they work much harder and just produce much higher quality output because they really buy into the vision of what the company is trying to achieve. And I do believe to AGM's point, um, I think that is what we're seeing in crypto, where ironically, the folks were least directly incentivized on their output, which is the contributors, are the ones who are contributing the most. And uh, the folks who are most uh, directly contributing to the outputs are, are sometimes not directly contributing. So yeah, again, I, I think that on the margin for outputs that are very measurable and very precisely defined, uh, I think we will see a rise of, of the bounty system. Well, I, I actually think it's, it's much further. Not to sort of sh- shell my product, but I, I like, I, but by the way, like bounties is like not our primary like uh, business. We, we sell computers in the cloud, but it, it was like a very um, like important way to showcase Replit's abilities uh, and to make our community money. Um, the But I, I, I will take the other side of that. And I, I will say that actually bounty type systems will um, will eat a lot more of work. I mean, the Coase's um, theory, as I understand it, is that the reason the, the 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 size of the firm is um, the, the the sort of the direct result of the um, is, is dependent on the cost of using the market. So the market has a cost, and that cost is a transaction cost. That's friction. That's trust. That's um, obviously just uh, pricing mechanisms. And because the market has a cost to it, we have to um, hire people full time and sort of hoard that talent, so that anytime we need work done, you kind of like go can go to that talent. And that's why Google uh, needs 120,000 employees, and most of them are uh, just like making lattes every day, um, getting really good at making lattes. Um, and uh, but at, at a drop of the hat, they would need them, and they would find them there. And there's very low friction on using their labor and their talents, right? So it's a very rational behavior to sort of hoard talent. Uh, it's sort of like the billionaire that has all these assistants. You're like, oh, they're just sitting around doing nothing. But at the drop of the hat, when something important happens, he needs all that labor, and he can't really hire it from the market at large. So anytime. Uh, technology reduces the cost of going to the market, you see us going to the market more. Again, people had a lot more drivers and personal drivers before Uber uh, came around. And now everyone has uh, access to the market at a very low transaction cost. Um, and, and and that's the same across the board. Like anything that you use today that you find you know very useful, like DoorDash, people used to have people that worked with them 
for them. Like people had servants that were around all day just waiting for that one order of the day to go get that. And now you're able to go to the market and get that labor on demand on the fly, right? So so I, th- I think uh, bounty type systems and I think crypto uh, as well could um, allow us to work on some coordination problems in order to uh, solve the transaction cost. So um, l- let me give you, let me paint a scenario that's a little bit sci-fi, but you know that's what we're here to talk about. But um, say I am in my IDE, I'm doing a bit of coding. I know that this piece of code needs a uh, refactoring. I know how to do it, but it's just going to take me legit like 30, 40 minutes to do it. I highlight that piece of code. I do right click. I say bounty refactor. Um, uh, some AI knows how much it's, this is going to cost just based on prior pricing. It sets the price pretty quickly. It goes to the market. It sends a notification to a bunch of people on the Reflet mobile app. Uh, they go to the computer. They sign in. Um, and then that, uh, what they could do is they could stake their currency. They could stake their money and say, like, I know I can do it. And I'm going to put $100 in order to win that bounty. Um, and if I don't do it in the allotted time, then you can slash my funds. So I go to Replit or whatever IDE, and then I have that code that I have to refactor. And there's maybe a timer and maybe the, the, uh, the money that I sort of put in. And you could do it in a way where it's like, you know, very... Uh, minute, like you could do it where your 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 fund is getting slashed by the second as you're coding. So that's like the, the sort of full matrix uh, sci-fi, um, and then um, and then you get that done really quickly. Uh, and either a human or an AI could sort of verify whether you've done it right or wrong. It, it, so so now like an engineer, and, and by the way, the, Antonio, this is like not against your point that. You know, there's a lot of like low skill bounty work to be done, but let's say you're sort of Karpathy and like it's much better for you to be thinking about higher level things, so you can have like you know hundreds of uh, coders at any given point working for you, so that you can focus on building like a billion dollar idea, right? Um, and I think a lot of these uh, bounty hunters could also build their AIs to do bounty hunting, right? And so some of them could build a scalable business doing b- bounty hunting. Um, and if we coordinate all these people using pricing mechanisms and using a sort of market mechanism and having AI as a way to help with the pricing, help with verification, I think you can create a very interesting market where it sort of reduces the demand for full-time employees and software companies. To shift in the conversation a little bit, uh, for people listening to this who want to join AI companies or want to invest in AI companies, Flo, what's your take on uh, what are the kinds of AI companies that are going to be enduring versus the kinds of companies that are going to be commodities and not capture a lot of value? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's, that seems to be the question on everyone's minds these days. Um, I, I, I view three categories of companies that operate right now, right? There's like what they call like big model, right? So it's like, like anthropic open AI that creates these giant models. Um, then there's the application layer on top of those and the application layer is going to be made up. Um, I'll, I'll just... Uh, arbitrarily slice it as like horizontal applications and vertical applications. Um, I, I think the big model is the easiest one to analyze here. I, I very much disagree with the idea that big models would be anything near a commodity. I think that the, the, um, if you follow the Hamilton, Hamler, uh, uh, he wrote that book, uh, Seven Powers, that lays uh, uh, an exhaustive uh, uh, list of all the possible modes. Uh, so a mode is something that protects you from the competition and you know uh, creates a monopoly, basically. 
if you have a large enough mode. Um, the mode for the large language models is going to be economies of scale, meaning it costs a fortune to build uh, large language models. It's costing more and more money. Um, you know, I think GPT-4 is going to cost of the order of, call it 100 mil, to train uh, between the resource class and the compute. It's very, very expensive, which is why OpenAI is raising all that money, plus the label to train it using RLHF, as Amjad described. So it's just very expensive to train, but that's a one-time cost. And then the inference cost, meaning the, the cost that it costs to run the AI once you've traded it, uh, is many orders of magnitude lower. So again, if you think of $100 million to train the AI, running it is more on the order of one cent, right? So I think that alone is going to create uh, very strongly monopolistic or oligopolistic tendencies in the industry for the large language players. I think the, the app layer is not very impacted by AI. I think uh, the, the mode analysis applies here in the same way that it applies for any other kind of format. I think the only thing that AI possibly changes here is that it introduces an, uh, what's called the data network effect to these companies, meaning, as Amjad said, um, you know, when you have users using your product to generate data that actually can be used to train your product. And so the more users you have, the more data you have, the more data you have, the better your model, the better your model, the more users you have, and so on and so forth. Uh, there's a question mark around what is the strength of the data network effect, but the data network effect exists and will act as a sort of mode for companies that leverage AI. I see, I see a lot of like very thin uh, companies built around models. The canonical example right now is kind of like Jasper and, and copy.ai. Um, that um, you know built kind of just prompts on top of GPT-3, and those I don't know about the staying power. Um, I think they're, they're certainly very thin. I think they will have staying power if they somehow entangle themselves within sort of, sort of enterprise workflows, like collaboration around the copy. You invite your team, and then maybe you want to keep your copy. Like if I squint, I can kind of see that, but I I, I don't see a huge huge deal for that for that category. Um, the horizontal applications, I think, or the other question, I think, uh, complexity that AI is added is only uh, one. Uh, I think here again, you know, the usual mode analysis is going to apply. You know, they're going to have a brand, they're going to have a network effect, they're going to have all of that stuff. I mean, you're right, Flo. We've, we've already saw that with Google, for example, right? I mean, the reason why Google is as good as it is is not because their AI is so amazing, although no, no doubt it is, it's because they have literally the entire world typing what they want, right? It was always the data set, it was never the actual algorithm. Algorithms aren't particularly defensible, right? At the end of the day, AI isn't a product any more than linear regression is, right? You actually have to apply it to something to create something that someone will pay you for, right? And that's where I kind of don't quite get a little bit of the AI hype, right? It's like, what is the actual product here? I mean, the JPEGs are great. By the way, I find it ironic that Web3 got endless shit for talking about JPEGs, and now we're talking about JPEGs and AI. But whatever. Um, like, where is the actual product? Because, like, for example, I saw Jan LeCun's comment from Google, and no doubt there's a little bit of coke and a little bit of professional jealousy saying, yeah, it's actually not that impressive. We had this technology for a while. We haven't done much with it. Let's just steal man that for a second. If Google can't actually find a way to turn that into actual cash, and a lot of these companies are actually basically thinly veiled, just prompt UIs on ChatGPT. What is the actual product? I mean, we already yeah. the coding. The coding thing, I think, is obviously is obvious. I think we covered that pretty well. But go beyond the coding thing. What what is the product that comes out of this? Yeah. Other than better versions of existing things like better ad ranking, better search engines, better whatever. What, what is the unique product that comes out of it? Totally. So I, I agree that like on the short time horizon, like three or six months, I agree that it's kind of overhyped right now because again, the GDP is not made of copywriters. Like writers are like a dime dozen, no, 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 as uh, AGM. Uh, all these, you know, the same. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I don't no, think- hold on, hold on, but, just, but just hold on, just to be clear and to call bullshit on, on things that both of you said, Amjad is thinking of replacing people with bounties, but programmer salaries have never been higher, right? 
And you're actually, the 10x engineer is not going to work for a bounty. And secondly, yeah. writers now, good writers who have unique voices on Substack are making more than they've ever made, right? And so the I, I think you're channeling a little bit your respective porn fantasies of being able to replace engineers with with code and AI or being re, being able to replace word cells with AI, but that's actually not happening. And it hasn't happened in the past 20 years. And so either the trend reverses or something fundamentally changed, but in reality, neither of those things are actually playing out. Right. Both of these are looking in the real view viewer, right? But I think look, the reason why folks make good money on Substack is not necessarily because they're good writers. I see plenty of mediocre writers. Not, not, I think they're very legit. Like I see plenty of uh, mediocre writers uh, make good money on Substack, not because of their writing skills, but because they own some type, some type of audience, right? So really what they are these the marketers, right? So um, but, that's, I but, that's, that's, but that's the point. That's exactly what it is. You're not, you're not paying for the writing. You're paying for the oh. personal touch. You're paying but to connect with Matty Glacius and troll him on his thing. That, that's yes. the thing. And that a computer will never replace. Right. I totally agree with you, which is why I agree. Production has been cheap, right? People are also talking about like generated music and all of that stuff. It's like any, you know, like you, you, like you go on SoundCloud and you see a bunch of people making amazing music and basically for free, right? So I agree with you that uh, if AI yeah, is, is well, generating... Yeah. It's, it's not free. Musicians make money on the touring. They don't make money on the distribution. That, that's, that's what Spotify changed, right? You actually have to go out and you play for the VIP ticket, which is going to the concert, having the shared experience, seeing the creative. Yeah. And again, Substack is the same thing, but there, but there's no trend line along which AI replaces either of those functions. Right? It's 100%, which I, right. that's my point. <laughs> yes, the right. production is not expensive. Production of text and production of music and production of, of images has not been where the value lies. You can hire folks on Pybill to do these things. Maybe not Pybill, but like you can hire folks to do these things just fine and you're still not going to go anywhere, right? So the value is in the distribution. So I think that if generative AI is going to change anything to the structure of the industry is that anytime you make anything cheaper, its complements become more valuable. So here we're making content cheaper, not that it was really necessary because it was all pretty cheap. Uh, and so the complement to content, which is distribution, is going to become more valuable. So I actually think that this, this is going to be great for TikTok and YouTube and all of that, right? It's going to it's going to make the content on these platforms even better and even more addictive, and that's going to be great for this platform. So to answer your question, like, what is it going to actually change in the economy in the near future? Um, I think all knowledge work will be automated in the next 20 years. Uh, and so I think, again, code is the first one that will see automated. That's, uh, I think, huge. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more come out in the next two years, uh, which are going to see action-oriented knowledge work that actually does stuff. I think it's going to be automated pretty soon. I expect support if it's going to be a pretty big one. When you think about it, all the knowledge worker is, is it's a function that sits in between a keyboard and a monitor. And I think AI is going to be really good at approximating that function. But just to be clear, you're saying that all knowledge work will be replaced in 20 years. We've been hearing that for 20 years. And in fact, if there's any bit of skepticism around AI, like you know, AI being at the like the very pivot of like changing everything, I at least have been hearing that since I've been in tech. And if you go back even further back, Marvin Minsky in the 60s and 70s, he's been saying the same thing, which is why I was sort of trying to quantify what is the, the change that we're seeing? Because again, there's clearly a trend line, like no doubt, obviously, AI and automation have changed lots of things. I'm not saying it hasn't been a big deal. I'm just trying to understand if we actually are at some sort of clear, like real inflection point, or are we continuing along the same trend line, which already, by the way, I think is a big deal, right? Like, I mean, what I cited, right, going from the Kernigan and Richies of the world to Replit, there's been, <laughs> there's been a big change, right? Like, I, I'm not trying to underwhelm it, but it's, it's, it's not quite AGI, Terminator, end of the world levels of change, right? And, yeah. and in many cases... Yeah. Like the same human dramas have just played out using different tools, right? Like your business of like everyone gets a chat GBT. I think of like, there was this photo that came out at the beginning of the war in Syria in which somebody was using an iPad to aim a mortar and kill another human, right? Which has been going back, which has been going on in that part of the world since the Bronze Age, right? So the fact that it's, that you're using an iPad and GPS to actually train a mortar 
on a civilian or an army unit, I guess is novel, but the underlying dramas are, are the same. So but I, what we'll see is that, you know, Tony Mengel says artificial intelligence is very valuable because we're so short of the real thing. Like intelligence is a very valuable thing. And so far, the best form of intelligence we've had is humans, which are expensive. So uh, to me, it just seems like a foregone conclusion that like if we can generate a factor of intelligence, pardon my French, for not a lot of money, that's a good thing. So now like the concrete around that, I agree all a little bit blurry, but you know, anecdotally, I know at least one business owner who hired all of his illustrators, he owns a small media company, and he's going to save millions of dollars over the next few years because he's like, why would I pay illustrators when I have a journey that is faster and actually better? So we're actually starting to see that kind of, of disruption. When something is not able to do a task, it just can't do the task. But we're now hitting that moment where across very broad sets of tasks, the best AIs are outperforming the average human. They're not yet at the level of the expert human in any specific domain, but they are, and this is true of ChatGPT, and if you believe Google's published research on Palm, you know, they've made that claim as of like six plus months ago. They can outperform employed college grads on very wide distributions of tasks to a big bench. Big bench is a big benchmark that uh, that they compared Palm to this like pool of you know, kind of software QA testers, essentially, and AI won. So I think that is just a very qualitatively different moment than in the past, because nobody before 2022 had ever made a claim like, our AI can outperform the median human on a hundred different, you know, very general different tasks. But now you've got Google and ChatGPT and probably soon Anthropic that are all in that game. And so I do think that that kind of creates a flip that we have not seen before. I don't know. I like this is the same discord I heard about when Big Blue defeated, um, you know, Kasparov at chess. I mean, it's, it's the exact same feeling. I mean, in times like this, right, I, I think a little I think a lot of this is actually intellectual narcissism on the part of humans who are who are assigning a certain anthropic value to computers thinking. And, and I think of the, um, the famous Dijkstra's quote, right? Again, we've been debating these questions for decades before any of us were alive. Right? And he was and he commented that. Asking whether a computer can think is like asking whether a submarine can swim, right? It, it doesn't matter. The point is that it does 40 knots and a human does one knot, right? And so along that particular dimension, which is moving through the water, the computer actually does do better than the human. And when it comes to ranking ads or, you know, filtering through Stack Overflow and coming up with a net result, clearly the computer does better, but that's very different than saying that it's more intelligent and this causes a crisis in the knowledge economy. Because um, again, it a lot of this doomerism, we again we we've heard before, which again and sometimes do, things do. There is a flippening, right? And it's and it's true that a lot of really pivotal technologies take twenty or thirty years to sort of mature into something devastating, right? I mean, the transistor was discovered in nineteen forty five, but the PC took until the eighties. It was thirty years until we went from the first email to webmail. So, like, it, it could be the case that in fact, you know what, we're actually are hitting an inflection point. So I guess that's what I'm trying to distinguish, because again, a lot of these debates, if you've been paying attention to tech, they're starting to rhyme a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I do think we're hitting an inflection point. And the main reason you can um, notice that is the jump in generality. Again, what I said about the pre von Neumann machine versus the post von Neumann machine, the generality of uh, LLMs can't be understated. Like for the first time, they can learn your intent from just one example. I can build Google Translate, Antonio, in three seconds. I'll just say English, hello, French, salut. And then I can say English, home. And then I'll 
continue the the French word. It's it's sort of like that's pretty freaking amazing. I, I, that hasn't happened before. In any time we have a jump in generality, like the last time was the Turing machine, is is, is sort of an enormous thing. And if you claim that it is going to benefit the existing players, therefore it's not clear how this is going to be a game changer. You know, you know. Unfortunately, the existing players have been benefiting from every platform shift. Like here's a black pill on on technology over the past uh, you know 20, 30 years. Um, the the cloud shift. Uh, the the biggest company in the cloud shift is AWS. The second biggest is Microsoft, right? Um, like you know, trillion dollars of of market cap added to these companies. Google catching up quickly, and Oracle as well. Uh, the mobile shift. The biggest company in the world has been around for fifty years. Apple, like trillion, you know, trillions of market cap added because of mobile. Uh, Google's as a, as the next uh, player. Facebook uh, was was a Web two company that benefited from from mobile. So the the idea that um, because existing players are be- going to benefit the most, therefore this is not a disruptive technology. I don't think it's a good argument. No, because- no, just to be clear, that was that wasn't the argument. I'm saying they've had the technology. And they haven't turned it into products, right? I mean, as anyone, I, everyone here has either worked at or been close to some sort of fan company. And it, like for you to actually ship a product at Google, it needs to move, you know, a very large dial and a very large needle, right? And so assuming they have something approaching this technology and they haven't deployed it in some interesting way, it suggests to me that they either they're completely sclerotic when it comes to product, and maybe they are, or maybe they couldn't actually find a way to turn it into something somebody would pay for. So the again, product, this price performance... Yeah has to has to get better like um i think uh chat gpt for it for for the for it to work on um sort of uh ad business economics it needs to get a thousand fold cheaper so yes i think there's a rational argument for why google hasn't deployed this on a wide scale because uh, they can create like a small prosumer business but who cares when you're google right you want to create uh, another major growth uh, area and so to to build an AI assistant that reaches the masses, it really needs to get a thousand times cheaper. Otherwise, your your TAM is sort of like knowledge workers in in sort of uh, North uh, America and Europe, which is uh, which probably like a sizable TAM for like OpenAI, um, but it's not a sizable TAM for for Google. And so you know, to your question about what are the main applications that we're going to see here. I'm like you. I'm bearish on consumer, um, so I don't think um, you know the the, the the you know Lenza uh, app. I'm sure they made a lot of money, which is really great for them. But it was pretty obvious to me it was going to be sort of a, a similar sort of hype thing. So they Lenza's this uh, consumer AI profile generator app, um, sort of uh, made millions of, of dollars over the, the span of days and went down, and now it's like plateauing. But but you know it's, it's a great app, but it's not a lasting big business. I don't think consumer is going to benefit all that much in terms of new net new apps. I think every app will get better. And I, I think actually the biggest beneficiaries of this shift is going to be sort of a growth stage startups. And the reason is because you got distribution, what Flo talked about distribution. So Notion adding AI is much more interesting than a new sort of um, knowledge management that's like based on uh, that's like AI first. So let's call it, you know, 
bearish on AI first uh, uh, companies. Uh, usually bullish on AI infrastructure companies. So uh, OpenAI or anyone really building dev tools around prompts, prompt IDEs, building fine tuning sort of uh, technology. Anyone who's who wants who, who are making it easier to build with transformer uh, models, uh, that's going to be something that every company will buy. Because again, I think it's a diffuse technology similar to cloud, like every company will integrate this kind of technology into their... So, you know, the financial sort of answer to your question is that if you want to invest in it, probably do do another FANG-type strategy because I think there's another set of S-curve there. Um, plus, maybe inve invest in infrastructure like NVIDIA, whatever. And then on the startup side, dev tools, uh, AI intelligence layer like OpenAI, uh, th those are sort of the beneficiaries. And maybe the growth stage startups, uh, early growth stage like us or or Notion or, or things like that will benefit a lot from this. Well, and although, so just briefly, Google has also deployed uh, language models. Like from what I understand, the latest version of Google Search uh, is running on build. But but uh, your point remains, uh, Antonio, I agree that uh, so far the applications have not been transformative yet. And so to your point, Amjad, um, yes, the incumbents always reap a huge part of the rewards whenever this kind of re technological revolution comes about. But I, I was at these talks the other day uh, with Redalpan, who was making the, the, the point that um, this is a very rapidly changing situation. He compared right now where we are with AI to uh, driving uh, in the night, in the fog, on uncertain terrain, and that uh, nobody, nobody exactly thrives in this kind of scenario, but startups are the best able to kind of navigate this kind of scenario. And so I agree that perhaps the growth stage startups are going to have the, the, the combination of you know the distribution and the agility to, to reap this kind of this kind of reward. I I have a question, and you know we can go in this direction or not. Is if LLMs are all based on the the data, right? I'm Elon. I own Twitter. Why am I why am I letting uh, OpenAI train on that data set or anyone else on that data set? If, if, you know, everyone has this conventional wisdom, oh, SEO is worth it because you get distribution. And then Google hollowed out all those SEO companies, Expedia, TripAdvisor, Yelp, and just kind of extracted all the stuff and then and then used the distribution. Why, why not just say, if I have a data set that's rich and proprietary, I'm going to put it out to the highest bidder because I, I have the distribution of the UGC content or the training content. And so how, how do you guys think about that? Because that's that's the one thing. It's like OpenAI has this, this chat GPT because the web is open, right? And if all of a sudden the the value is in okay the the competitive advantage on the training set, like why why wouldn't I shut that off? Or you know if I'm Yelp, I'm only allowing Apple's LLM to have access to that. Or something like that. Yeah, so so we're already seeing that. Uh, there's a tweet from Elon. I'll put it in the chat. Uh, maybe put it in the show notes. He's saying uh, I just learned that OpenAI had access to a database for training. I put a pause on that. So need to understand governance, the structure, and revenue plans going forward. What you said is exactly happening. I think more and more companies are realizing that the data asset is actually a really big asset. And I think for a lot of companies that maybe Web2 companies that were sort of on the decline, maybe they're now realizing that they have an asset value that was like higher than they previously thought. Um, and so, so I, I think going forward, I think uh, companies are going to be more protective of their data. That being said, the pre-training step of GPT-style models um, benefits from 
uh, just massive amount of data, even if the quality of data is not high. So the more data, the, the better. So I think they're going to be less sensitive about one or two companies on the margins kind of shutting down access. The thing that's going to be the data mode uh, layer is going to be in the RLHF fine-tuning layer. And this is like where, I think this is what OpenAI is sort of selling to enterprises right now, which is at Microsoft, OpenAI, Azure uh, service, just saying like, we're going to provide the pre-trained model trained on internet scale data, and we're going to partner with you to collect um, uh, sort of uh, user data that is uh, primarily uh, based on your application. Are we going to create a derivative model that uh, that is hyper-specialized for your app? You know, if only we'd created some way to have true digital ownership subject to some consensus protocol that could serve as the core of financial transactions. If only humanity had invented such a thing, then you could actually negotiate the ownership of of open training data. Is this a good segue, Eric? This is why they pay me the big bucks as one of the uh, members of this uh, thing, Eric. So, so I actually think think that's an that's an interesting question. Like the the main thing, you know, Bitcoin and, and crypto do is that they're coordination technologies, right? I mean, well, you know, when I was talking about the bounties thing, the concept of staking, as I sort of you know stole it from from the crypto community, right? Like staking is such a cool coordination concept. So there's a lot of coordination concepts that were innovated in the sort of uh, crypto world that I think is, is going to be really interesting in an AI world because the more you automate, the more um, the sort of the transaction cost and the coordination problem becomes a bottleneck. And so how do you solve these coordination problems? I think sort of market dynamics. What are the best way to create sort of market dynamics in the internet? I think internet money comes to, to mind as a way to create that. So some way to, you know, pay people for their contribution, I think is the ethical thing to do. Like the idea that, um, you know, be, being able to uh, like pay people for the data that they create is is not a bad idea. Like, um, you know, if we can trace the, op- the Wikipedia um, sort of uh, contributions uh, on, on a, on a character by character or token by token level that gets fed into GPT and a hypothetical company in the future that wants to do the right thing would assign some kind of hypothetical value per token and they can just like pay out some revenue share to the authors of the uh, of the data that they were uh, trained on or maybe the data that gets used in, in production. There's a lot of attribution work happening in LLMs right now because Microsoft is coming under a huge pressure to be able to cite code in Copilot. So a lot of open source developers are unhappy that you can tell Copilot, write this in the style of John Carmack, for example. And so they want to be able to cite licenses and cite code in GitHub uh, when they when they emit code that is like verbatim coming out of a source. That said, something. yeah, I, I agree. I think that companies are probably going to realize that data is worth a lot of money and they should probably do something about it. That said, like, I think on the margin, the one player that will really win most from this is going to be Google. Because Twitter is, is cute, but I think like it's data compared to internet scale data, I don't think it's, it's that bad. Um, I will need to look at the actual data here, but I suspect that data that Google has is actually significant. And actually, the, the rumor on the street is that the reason why OpenAI released Whisper, so they released a, a state-of-the-art 
voice recognition engine recently, um, the, the, the rumor on the street is that the reason why they did that is because they are running out of data to train GPT-4 and GPT-5 with, and that they need so much data that the next frontier is going to be videos and YouTube. So I actually think that Google, between YouTube and Gmail, and the fact that they, they keep the web in, in memory, I think is the one with a ton of data here. But but then I also wonder here about, I mean, you, you know that like NINS circuit uh, a case that you know they ruled that you LinkedIn couldn't forbid people from scraping them. It's like, hey, if it's available to a human, it's available to a machine. I wonder if that's going to play a role here. I wonder how much Elon can actually block up an AI from, from scraping them. Uh, Flo, was the coordination that Amjad was talking about that that crypto enables uh, exciting to you? Why why are you uh, bearish on, on on crypto? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> okay, I'll start. I'll start with what I'm not bearish about. Okay, so. I believe in Bitcoin as uh, an instrument of political liberation and as a road for exit. I'm glad that we got currency exit. We got our own currency. This is great. All right. Uh, I, I, DeFi is interesting. You know, I, I kind of agree that the primitives that uh, finance are built about are, 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 are kind of flimsy. I think that, uh, you know, uh, uh, composability is very important for finance. And finance is like 10% of the American GDP or whatever. So, like, that's, that's huge, right? Web3, I think, is, is an interesting experiment. I think my, my, my problems with, with Web3 is that, I also love, I think the value prop to the user isn't clear to me. I think decentralization is not a value prop. I see a lot of things are like, well, like a decentralized messaging app. And I'm like, cool. Like, what does that mean for me as a user, right? I, I, I generally see a lot of a, a, a idealism in the industry, um, which I appreciate like the ideology tech generally, but I, I do see a lot of, of pragmatism. I think it's, it's, um, I, I, and I view this ideology as ignorant of the fact that the internet, one, since started in a very decentralized fashion and has been trading away from decentralization. Uh, so, you know, we uh, email, you know, is built on decentralized protocol and now it's, it's consolidating on top of Gmail and Yahoo because, you know, convenience always wins and users like having a good experience that they can't get with purely decentralized protocol. For example, there is no way that a decentralized protocol can, get, can give you a search box. There is no way that on top of IMAP or Pub3, the, the, the protocols on top of which uh, email are built, uh, there is no way that they can give you search. So you need a centralized server to give you search, for example. Um, users like to uh, forget the passwords. They like to have an I forgot my password button. Uh, that is a huge problem in crypto. It is not unsolvable, but it is a big problem in crypto, which is, uh, yes, uh, you have sovereignty. Yes, you own your keys, you own your data. If you lose your keys, you're fucked. Uh, there is no way to recover. Nobody has any way whatsoever. And so... That alone, I think, is a, is a major blocker. Um, and I think, uh, paradoxically, so it's, it's ignorant of the fact that the internet started out decentralized and, and has like centralized all the time because that's kind of what the market wants. And simultaneously of the fact that I think the internet remain, it remains decentralized in exactly the right way. And it remains permissionless in exactly the right way. I need to ask for nobody's permission to create a Twitter account. Well, Twitter account in a way, I do need Twitter's permission, but to create a website and, and, and whatnot. Now, Twitter and YouTube, I see you not then, because it is true that I can be the platform of Twitter and YouTube. It is true that if I'm a sex worker, I'm going to struggle to get payments. So again, Bitcoin, I'm not that we've got this in place. Money. Like, fuck it. Like, we, we want this. Like, on the chessboard, we want the quit. Like, this is mission accomplished. I love that we did that. Um, the Twitter and YouTube, the platforming thing, <sighs> ideologically, look, I, I'm a libertarian, right? So, like, I, I don't like to see people be platformed as, 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 you know, more than the next guy, but it's not a real problem that people are facing. Right, it's a problem if you're Andrew Tate or, or Donald Trump, right? But I think the average guy does not really have a problem of uh, I 
have and being the platform from YouTube and Twitter. And, you know, I, I'm all for experimentation. I think it's very often that you see startups that come out and, and, and you know, get excited about something and are not solving a real problem and they raise the small seed round and they run out of money because they don't from product market fit and they go out of business. I think what's peculiar about crypto is that it's not a single startup that raised the seed round pre-PMF. It's an entire industry that was created pre-PMF. Billions and billions and billions of dollars. And, you know, crypto folks... By the way, my, my fiancée is in crypto. She was... Uh, she was working at Coinbase. This is an ongoing debate. I'm very familiar with the whole crypto thesis. I think that what she always tells me is, oh, it's very early. Give it time, right? And I'm like, you know, it's not that early anymore, right? The, the, the Bitcoin paper was published 14 or 15 years ago, and it's it's a ground that is now very visited. A lot of people have been ticking for a very long time, 15 years or so. Billions of dollars and thousands of people have, de- have been digging this ground. And truth to be told, we haven't really seen adoption. We've seen speculation, which is, I think, the reason why crypto has gone so far without PMF, which is we see these skills, we see these billions of dollars being traded, and I think most of that is speculation, not actual adoption, not actual using. Um, crypto folks, there is that uh, chart going about on Twitter, which is overlapping the crypto adoption, uh, adoption curve with the internet adoption curve, and I'm like, look, we're on track. And I'm like, first of all, this is not real adoption, this is uh, speculation. Second, if the internet actually had product market fit uh, immediately, uh, Apple, uh, you know, made $8 million of revenue on year two, and Amazon made $15 million of revenue on year two, and both of these companies IPO'd on year three and made billions of dollars. Netscape was a phenomenon. The first that, application- none, none of that is true, sorry. There was 30 years before the invention of the email and webmail. I mean, I lived through some of this. It, it's not true that the internet had instantaneous adoption. By the way, there is no internet in the 30 of Apple, by the way. At least no consumer internet. I mean, you're, you're comparing Apple's I don't want to interrupt the whole thing, but it's just not true what you just got it. Yeah. Sorry. The, I think we, you're, you're, you're just misunderstanding. Okay, look, I, I have to just jump in here for a second. Since we're the Web3 people and we've been going on and on about today, I think you, what you don't understand is that Web3 is a reverse of Web2 in many ways. Web2 had adoption, but it had, didn't have a fucking business model. I was at Facebook three months before the IPO and the ad system was a fucking shit show, right? Uber didn't have a profitable quarter until two years ago. And, and how many years has, has Uber been in, in, you know, in business? That, that was the whole thing. You found a consumer use case and you figured out a way to visit, build a business model around it later and you hope you would get there before it flamed out. And there were thousands of companies that flamed out and a few well, of them that yeah. rose from the wreckage. And in Web3, it's the reverse. It's heavily financialized. The speculative capital is, is retail versus venture capitalist. And then you struggle to find the consumer use case. It's not totally true that it has no PMF either. DeFi actually does have some level of PMF, even though consumer and gaming has less so. I mean, I, I think you're just, you're not, you're not looking at it correctly, I think. It, it's just, I don't know, it, it, it's a different model for it. And just because it doesn't follow through the exact same timeline as Web2 doesn't mean necessarily it's an utter failure, right? It's just a I different should, way again, of it. Just to clarify my position, not saying crypto is all trash and shit for the way. I'm all for experimentation. I'm all for that, right? I like cherish that. I do believe it is overinvested in compared to the proof points that it's reached. I, I disagree that uh, internet had no PMF. So yeah, Apple is not the internet. It's more like a PC revolution, instant PMF. Amazon, I think, was very much a Web 1.0 company that had instant PMF. Email, yes, was you know before the webmail and before the before the web, email was really the first killer app of the internet. Uh, the web, Tim Berners-Lee invented it in that paper. It's a pretty thought one. It was called uh, information organization colon uh, a, a proposal, right? And like the use case was extremely clear. It was like, look, you guys, we have all of these fucking papers laying around. We have no way to that's, find that. That is totally hide- false. If we, that's completely, you're completely full of it, Flo. If we had Mark Andreessen back here, 
he would give you in a fucking most traumatic post PTSD way how much fucking haterade Netscape had for years. It, it is not true that it was obvious yeah, in the beginning. They had I was there for the original pitches for Uber. It sounded like a fucking stupid idea. Who the fuck used black cars in the one city that it worked in? Airbnb sounded fucking moronic. They had to sell fucking Syria at the Democratic National Convention to pay the fucking bills. Like you're retconning this whole thing that it was so obvious, but it was also amazing. They went, dude, I was no, I, I was at these companies. I got lectured by fucking Joe Gebbi at my first YC dinner. It was it wasn't these things weren't obvious from day one. They absolutely were not. I worked at Uber. I was there. I worked there. Okay, I saw. And you joined it after they stole the Lyft business model, which was the UberX one. Before that, it was basically black cars. It didn't take off until then. You are making so much money. All my friends were using it. I have not one friend who uses crypto. Not one. Who who here has used crypto? I took three Ubers just today. Who here has used crypto today? Can I I offer maybe a a balanced perspective, given that I've been in crypto for 10 years and I probably am the least hype guy as it relates to crypto who works in crypto? I, I think... The the intellectual thing with tech and, and history nerds is like everyone tries to fit it to like, oh, well, this is like this and this, and this is going to follow this adoption curve. And I think all those charts that are trying to say, oh, this is just like the web. People were saying that in 2014 when I joined Coinbase about Bitcoin. It's like, oh, this is the Netscape moment. And then in 2017, it was the Netscape moment. And and in the last cycle, the Netscape moment. I, I think that the thing with crypto is foundational breakthrough primitive solves an unsolved computer science problem, right? And from there, I think people are kind of now trying to figure out what the hell do we do this with this thing? We're back to Amjad's point. It's we figured out a way to create consensus on the internet in a completely decentralized and trustless way. And now we can actually start thinking about like the types of institutions and products and, and services that we would potentially build on top of that and what this uniquely enables. I, I generally have an opinion that most shit that's on chain shouldn't be on chain because I think people see this as like this fancy thing and are trying to put it, uh, you know, because it's a fancy new technology. But that that's also happened. Like, I mean, we've had things that, like that with AI and like, you know, hype cycles with technology. And I think the challenge with crypto is, to Antonio's point, is heavily financialized. It's, it's the first technology that allows you to just like generate new money as like the first first part of your like code commit, it's like, oh, great, I can create a cryptocurrency. And um, I think that that has exacerbated the equivalent of the dot-com bubble in a very short period of time. And, and it's not just one, we've already had three major ones and there were more Bitcoin bubbles prior to me joining. And so I think we're actually just speed running finance. And if you go read like Nal Ferguson's The Ascent of Money and like all the different bubbles that he talks about and all the different new financial assets, in a 15-year period with a bunch of people in Silicon Valley who are trained towards like building products. And I think generally haven't had most people building products in crypto. I think most people coming into crypto are looking at it as a fast cash grab. There are, uh, I think, a small subset of people who are actually in it because they they fundamentally believe in the change of technology. I'd like to think that I'd be one of those people. But um, I think that the, the shift is going to happen over the next five years because the technologies are finally starting to get more mature at the base level, right? Like for a while, like Bitcoin was it. And then now you had Ethereum and Ethereum just got to proof of stake. And so I think that like the foundational technologies are still getting built out, but we're going to have multiple financial bubbles on top of it from, you know, and and, and as a result of those financial bubbles, it's going to always attract capital and it's going to make people grumpy who are like, why are the people investing in this shit? It's just speculation. Yeah, I think that the financialization pro- is potentially a problem, right? And again, it's not that different 
than Web2. They're like a bunch of bros raising random speculative capital from venture capitalists rather than crypto, pumping it into ad models to actually drive metrics that are actually fake, by the way, and then basically blowing up. Like that was also a Web2 phenomenon, right? It, it, it's not like, it's funny being in Web3 as like this Web2 boomer, like the history rhymes a lot, right? And you look at blowups like FTX, it's like, bro, do you realize the first dot-com boom, the NASDAQ, it took out 80% of the NASDAQ, it took out the American economy for a long time, right? Like the 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 sort of roller coaster ride from Web2 to Web2, from Web1 to Web2, dwarf what's going on in Web3. And it's funny, I mean, Flo, you expressed sort of nostalgia for the Web1 protocol era. You realize the underlying motivations for the actual builders in Web3 is to return to that Web1 thing. Everybody is basically nostalgic about something because no one has any vision of the future in the West anymore because we're living in a decadent society. But in the case of Web3, they're saying, oh my God, you know, I pine for the days of SendMail or whatever, where we all just agreed we're going to build on this and there's no way of booting anyone off and the value is really in the protocol and how, how do we build that? And they're trying to build that in a world in which institutions and icon and all the various, you know, there's no request for proposals anymore to come up with the HTTP standard, any of that stuff, right? How do you manage to actually coordinate human behavior to get to incentivize them to all agree that we're going to build things along this with this shared state? Like, what is what is the alternative to doing that? Because dithering in Web 2 and watching the fan companies duke it out and try to build out yet another way to buy something else on this fucking device, I'm not I'm not pouring my life into it. It's, it's duller than fuck. Like, it, it's just, it's too boring. Right. So like if, this, if that's not the alternative, then what is? Because I, I, I don't see another way of doing it. But my point is that we started there and then we moved away from it. And now we're having an entire movement that's like, wouldn't be neat if we pushed this boulder back up here. I'm like, well, guess what? This, you know, the same thing's going to happen. What I resent is not the over-financialization of the industry, Antonio. It's the lack of value created. Again, Amazon, two, $80 million, $15 million on year two. You know, you had people pressing a button, having access to all the books that were ever done, and you received that book at your door three days later. That was real value generated. Um, I, as a nerd, as, an, as a technologist, you know, I, I see value. I, I'm drawn to crypto as much as an ex-guy, but I still fail to see the actual value, the tangible value that's been generated 14 years in. I don't see it. I, I can give you some tangible value. So, um, so this is the sort of the maybe uh, Bitcoin maximalist uh, view. Um, my view is that a lot of uh, crypto distracted from Bitcoin's potential. So uh, there's this company called uh, Stackwork with a K, stackwork.com, and it is a bounties uh, program. It's not for uh, programming or high skill work. It's a very low skill work. You can. Uh, they have this no-code tool where you can design a program. And in one of the nodes, you can have a human element, like a mechanical torque element. So you can say, go t take a photo of this item in this grocery store, and they'll go do that. And they get uh, paid in uh, sats. So they have, uh, they, they paid a tons of Bitcoins out. They have thousands of workers on this platform. Uh, they have another app uh, called Sphinx, and Sphinx is a sort of a creator economy application where you can go there, discover uh, podcasts. Once you start listening to a podcast, you're streaming Satoshis, and as you're listening to a podcast, it's actually a very compelling ecosystem. It's all built on Bitcoin Lightning, and people like uh, Antonio or uh, Dan will be like against Lightning. Will say. Well, we'll give you, uh, you know, we'll give you the same sort of arguments uh, that, you know, that you're giving them against uh, uh, crypto, against Lightning. It's, oh, it's, Lightning's been around for a long time. What does it do? But actually, the Lightning ecosystem is pretty advanced. And the companies that are building on Lightning, in my opinion, 
are very honest and they're not going for the quick buck. There's this thing, Bitcoin comes with this sort of ideology and the sort of the Austrian economic ideology, conservative ideology, and they want to be low time preference, meaning they don't want to earn the dollar today. They want to delay gratification and they want to build something for the long term. And I find when I talk to these people, I find them that they're really motivated, hardworking people. On the other hand, and this is a generalization, but when I talk to the Web3 sort of, um, you know, m monkey JPEG people, they tend to be maniacal, sort of greedy type uh, people. Again, this is this is a generalization. I have a lot of friends, including Antonio, that, that has a monkey JPEG profile picture. But the generalization is like, they're like not in it to like actually build hard tech for the long time. Again, there, there are exceptions like, uh, you know, like Farcaster and other communities like that that are actually quite unique in a sea of scammers. Uh, but it is sort of really invited a lot of scamming. It invited a lot of um, uh, sort of ideas just didn't make sense. So at the height of the bubble, there was this uh, company uh, that uh, popularized this idea of like play to earn. Right. So, um, you know, I, I started looking at it. I started hearing about this company that was, it was like uh, people in the Philippines that were earning uh, thousands of dollars on it. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, you know, that really matches with how I view the world and how I'd like the internet to be as this uh, place where people can uh, change their life circumstances. And I, I go look at this whole thing, Axie Infinity. And I read on it and I read on it. And I'm like, I'm sure I'm missing something. It's just a blatant Ponzi. It's a fucking Ponzi. Like right there staring at you. It's a worse Ponzi than Bernie Madoff. And, uh, you know, uh, it was like, you know, everyone in tech thought they were like really great and they were doing amazing things. There's one line in one of their white papers saying that we know there's a sustainability problem and we're working on it. But that's code word for it's a Ponzi. There's no... It's it's a closed system. So the way Ponzi schemes work, Bernie Madoff would take people's money and then uh, would pay people's money to the earlier investors. And then he would need new investors to pay the current investors, right? And so the way, it, it literally the way that, that Axie Infinity worked was that. And that was a poster child for play to earn and so the crypto gaming uh, community. And the thing about Ponzi is people really want to believe because they're making money and it's just so true and so so good to 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 be false right so uh bernie madoff made people 16% year over year compound annual interest for 40 years for 40 years he was taking in money and giving it back <laughs> to earlier investors that's like an amazing business 40 years right so um like a lot of these web3 to tokenomics companies were like straight ponzi's um, and, 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 and people want to believe in it because it's just like, sounds good. Um, and, and so ultimately what I think happened is, uh, Bitcoin was set back perhaps a decade by the Ponzi's and by the crap and the high tide preference shit that happened in the web three community. Just for starters, a few things, you know, it's funny you're quoting, the original Bitcoin paper as the start of crypto when the Vitalik paper was less than 10 years ago. But, and you're also, I mean, the problem with Axie is that the game sucked. That's what happened with it, right? That 
playing a game for virtual goods and marketing virtual goods have been around since Web2 Gaming has been around. Like that's- no, 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 but, 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 but the problem with the economics don't work, uh, Antonio. They, right, because the, the game sucks. Right, because the game minor. sucks. Because the yeah, game that, sucks. That, no one actually that, would naturally play the game. But that, that, that's that, very different that, than, again, what are you going to do with Bitcoin? Dude, who, who the fuck is actually building anything on Bitcoin? I, I, I mean, I just told you Zachworks is building a real let, service let that real people use. But it's just a payment the, app, dude. It doesn't build anything. It doesn't do anything. There's no shared no, no, state. It's the Mechanical Turk uh, application. You can get workers online. Dan, jump in. So, so I think that Anjan, I would, I would take the other side of what, what, why Bitcoin lost the emphasis and in, in terms of like the builders, like the Silicon Valley type builder, and and is not interested in Bitcoin is because when Bitcoin was going through its kind of block size crisis. The, the community that controlled the core repos basically said, we're going to keep it at one megabyte. So it, it did not believe in Moore's law and it did not believe in like, hey, the future can get better. But they turned out to be right. Every uh, crypto out there is, is centralizing like crazy. Uh, you know, Ethereum is super centralized now because of the... Uh, because How are you defining centralization take? of Ethereum? Because this is like a classic Bitcoiner thing. And I don't know if we want to get this on this podcast, but like Ethereum seems pretty decentralized to me. In, in like... How is it decentralized if they're able to block uh, transactions from Tornado? But there are nodes that de- don't do uh, transaction blocking. Like that, that's Bitcoin. Bitcoin had at one point, I'm old enough in crypto, that there was a mining pool that did not believe in gambling. I think there was some religious reason. And there used to be something in Bitcoin in the, the limited amount of on chain programming that existed called Satoshi dice. And they would not take the Satoshi dice uh, transactions in their block. And I remember it was like the first the first year as a Coinbase, I was like, what? And and it was like, oh yeah, well, the miner can just do whatever they want. And so Bitcoin mining is like 50, 60% controlled, I want to say, by like two different mining pools. And so any any person want to talk about Bitcoin is is somehow more decentralized than Ethereum. It's just like you you have a bunch of mining. But something mining like tornado pools. something like censorship of tornado uh transactions would never happen in Bitcoin. Right, because there's no programming within Bitcoin. And 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 exactly. hold on, Bitcoin coin join and like uh, the Bitcoin mixers, like basically no privacy, have been all de-anonymized by, uh, by analysis. And, and, and so Vitalik already put out something this week about stealth addresses. And, and then someone actually had an interesting proof. Like the dynamism of the, uh, the Ethereum ecosystem and, and other crypto ecosystem, not all, is, is I, I think it's like it's intellectually inconsistent to not say that you don't have really smart people who actually care about decentralization working outside. No, no, no. I mean, I'd say there, there isn't smart people. The smartest people are working on Bitcoin. It's uh, sort of going back to the sort of Rune uh, tweet, the famous tweet about the, you know, war cells, right? It's like, um, you know, the, uh, the crypto cells like care about like sky high abstractions. And it's, like, it's a nerd trap. It's like a high IQ nerd trap. And, um, and, and, and I, AGI I, isn't. And, it, and I was about to say, and AI isn't. Well, uh, some aspects of AGI uh, is, but but at the end of the day, like you're actually contributing to something that's changing people's uh, uh, lives in fundamental ways. Like so you guys said, the consumer use case doesn't exist. No, no, I said the the uh, the one consumer use case that exists is assistant, and that's a huge use case. But you that's said like, it needed a thousand x cost improvement, which sounds a lot like what people criticize crypto of saying you need to increase block size. Well, or speed I, I said or that these are thousand x to match the economics of Google, but apparently which, is, which is practical, right? Like no one's going to pay for that. Well, no, even if you pay, AI is already well. AI is running the AI industry, and AI is already running Google. Like those are consumer use cases. But but hold on, the, the the AGI or you know AI LLM stuff that we're talking about right now, right? 
Yeah, the the, the, the the tip of the spear of the spear the the, the, the the cutting edge of the research is expensive. And like you need it to go down. And like Moore's law is going to take care of that. And there's even like other forces on top of Moore's law. But Sounds like AI, every crypto person I know who's, who's no, arguing that we're AI, at the tip of the spear. AI is self-financed. Like the tip of the spear is being financed by current applications by Google. Like the transformer paper was being financed by Google because they're like, for them, it's all white positive. They're like, we're mm-hmm. making so much money out of that. And every tiny, tiny basis point on top of that is a huge deal for us. Let's right, throw the, a flag on that. Case it's it's financed by Microsoft, which has a yep. monopoly on office software that is giving open AI credits on Azure. So it's not self-financed. But no, you have nonetheless. AI, Dan, you've used AI 50 times, I guarantee if I look at your phone and at your browsing is it you use the AI I, 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 hold on I am not saying I'm not using AI like I'm not, I'm not delusional like that. what I'm trying to say is you're taking the tip of the spear in AI you're giving it all this like oh well it needs to get cheaper like you know all this stuff crypto is that crypto is 15 years old no because the difference is that you can actually extrapolate you're taking an existing kill like look this is your spool this is your spool this is your spool this is your spool you keep extrapolating 10 years and this is going to be really fucking years but I don't see that kill based on 30 years of research prior. It, it, it's it's like a, it's a mature field. It's been compounding for that much longer. But Dan, there are th- fundamental physics laws that are like, you know, you know, with with like Ponzi schemes will never work, right? That's like you know, that's something no, we should. No one really is agree arguing on. Ponzi schemes should exist. Yeah, but Antonio suggests that defend was defending Axie Infinity. Right? Like, it's he like, said it was a bad game. No, I'm not, dude. I'm not. I, I was presenting the fact that you're using rivers of Ethereum, and the listener is going to take Axie and represent Ethereum, but it's totally not the case. It was not Ethereum. It has no active development on it. You can't build anything on the Bitcoin blockchain. Tell me, tell me, tell me one tokenomics sort of app that is not a Ponzi. Tokenomics app. You mean a piece of DeFi that isn't a Ponzi? I'd say there's yeah. a lot of DeFi protocols that yeah. So Maker Maker's not a Ponzi. Yeah, yeah. What is what like, is Maker? Maker has a decentralized stablecoin that you can buy the underlying asset, which gets a cut of the fees. That in the case of a DPEG, you are now the insurer. So it's actually taking a model that from is, finance. That is, that is impossible to parse <laughs> as a as a sentence. <laughs> Let me try and understand it. I'm not going to explain maker in this call. We, we, okay. but, but that's an example of something that is it is decentralized. T- typically, and- typically, it's either a Ponzi or it's a closed system circle jerk that is not affecting consumers or like any person who's not actually building on it, right? So uh, it, is, it is a Ponzi either in the fact that it just needs requires new money in every you know month or day or week, whatever, to continue to go up, to continue people get interested in it. Like the, the there isn't like. The cash is never cashed out, right? Like there's no consumer benefit at the end of the day that, that is actually making, uh, like how does the economy grow? How does people's lives get better is by like actually like making something useful for ordinary people. That's the ultimate kind of um, cashing of the check of any sort of technology, right? So um, so, so like, the, you know, um, the, 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 the thing that I wanted to convey is that, like, is that I believe in crypto is what I'm saying, and I I, say, I pointed out to an example stack work of something that's working today, but instead, you know, we're putting our energy into a lot of stuff that's that's fundamentally unworkable, and I think putting things on the blockchain, and you said it, just doesn't work. Putting Twitter on the blockchain will never work. Will never work. Like it's I'm not, physically I'm not impossible. Ar- I'm not arguing with you. 
Yeah. Which is you now in Fungus, which is like you're not doing, you're not putting another. Right. My point that, is that these are new types of computers. And I think that they got overly financialized early. Actually, because Bitcoin was oriented towards payments, I think it went in this fintech direction for a while. And I think that there's a lot of potential in kind of decentralized smart contracts that you know that no individual company, country, anyone else can come in and muck with your contract. Right? That, that contract the can run. Type, uh, the nil trap that Amjad is talking about, which is like, again, and that's why I started this whole thing by saying I do believe in Bitcoin. I think, to, to your point, Dan, the breakthrough, the technological breakthrough of crypto is we've created the decentralized ledger. That's huge, right? So that means like, if you can't trust one guy to hold a specific ledger, you don't need to trust him anymore. You can have a decentralized ledger, right? That's why we started with currency, because if, there, if there's one guy we can't trust, it's the government, right? Everybody kind of agrees on that, right? So like, hey, like let's take that ledger out of the hands of the government, right? Mission accomplished, we did that, right? Like that's the Bitcoin maximalist camp, right? Yeah. Now the other ledgers where it's like, you know, hey, we want to take the Twitter ledger out of Twitter's hands, the YouTube ledgers out of their hands because they're evil and they're the platforming tool. I'm like, Right, but like the eBay ledger, I'm like, you know, decentralized platforms are not that untrustworthy. I think they're doing a reasonable job, and I don't think we need to decentralize all that many ledgers. I think, by and large, the world and the economy have found much cheaper and, frankly, more elegant ways to solve that trust problem. Yeah, I guess, look, I'm not going to convince you on the call. I think that the thing that I would say is a Turing-complete computer that can run that no Again, individual company, country can go pull out of the wall, which we've had plenty of examples of when, when there's a determined enough state actor, they will find that data center and they will pull that thing out of the wall. Um, I think that there's something pretty powerful about that. And Bitcoin had a potential opportunity to do that in terms of building the improvements to the core protocol. I think Ethereum has improved on that. And and so all I'm trying to say is I do think that the there's a lot of unrealized potential from a developer experience standpoint of building new apps and services that for the most part are abstracted away from consumers, but are getting the benefit of that shared Turing complete computer on a blockchain. And so, so that, that, that's what I'm trying to say. I agree with all that with the exception that you don't need a Turing uh, complete computer. Like you could do a lot with like Merkle trees and notarizing on the Bitcoin uh, blockchain. You could do ZK snark computation off, off chain and there's like so much you could do that doesn't require a full computer on on chain, but I mean that's like an implementation detail. No, no, no. But I, I, I look, I, I think that ultimately there's going to be a bunch of different attempts, and the beauty of capitalism is there's going to be a bunch of money that's lost, but at the same time there's going to be winning solutions, assuming that it's actually solving problems. And so the one thing I do agree with you on is too many people in crypto approach whatever they're trying to do with either an overly idealistic uh, approach to it. So that that's the charitable side or they're in it for a quick cash grab. And so then they kind of throw together some marketing site that sounds like X on the blockchain. But the reality is I still don't think it changes that there's this now this new technological primitive that if you're the right kind of idea maze, you know, searcher, you can potentially find some new thing that you can offer consumers and businesses that is superior in some way. And I think this is going to, there's going to be a lot of attempts at that. And over the next five to 10 years, I, I, I genuinely believe, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, my skin in the game is I'm putting my time into it, right? So I, I, I think that we're going to see some of that actually finally start to yield. And I think part I, of that I, I agree is with every... taking 10 years of infrastructure. 
I agree with every bit of that statement. And the, and the reason I thought Farcaster was, was super interesting is because it was super pragmatic about the way it's, it's uh, using the, the blockchain. I mean, and, 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 you're see, and you're seeing that shift, right? I mean, you coined the term, I think you coined it sufficiently decentralized. And, and more broadly, I mean, that's why I started the company I started, right? Like at some point, unit economics, and you've seen it already, right? Post-crypto winter, post-FTX, the vibe, there's been a big vibe shift inside Web3, right? And like the thought that like, oh shit, like the user monetization actually has to outpace acquisition costs, right? Which is like a shocking concept inside Web3. Like when I first started pitching my company, I'd have to explain what the fuck LTV and CACs are to people with like relatively large scale protocols. They had no idea what the fuck it was, much less measuring it, right? And, and so but you're seeing that shift, but I, I, there's companies that have scaled that achieve some level of product market fit. They've raised real money. They're not bailing. The founders are committed and they're trying to, they're trying to figure out how to turn it into a business, but you realize they don't even have a lot of the most basic tooling, right? The blockchain is miraculous in some ways. It's actually not a very good user data store when you actually try to turn it into a, like a data machine, which is again, part of, I'm talking my bag here in my book, part of what we're doing, but it's, it's, there's a lot of basic shit that does exist. Right in in Web three that that needs to be built because we're outside of the of the Ponzi zone, right? Ideally, I have the bounce. Great, great discussion, guys. We sh- we we should wrap soon, but I want to give anyone the opportunity to say kind of a wrap up statement if they uh, haven't gotten their their final piece on either this conversation or the previous conversation. So any uh, any wrap up statements? Uh, otherwise, I'll, I'll just wrap it up. Crypto is a scam, and GI is coming. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Donald Trump. Why the fuck aren't you in a ranch in Montana with armor piercing rounds for the Boston Dynamics dogs? It's it's like Obama going out about climate change and living in a fucking waterfront home in Martha's Vineyard. None of these AGI bros are actually like taking it seriously and living in the way that you'd live if you thought AGI was five years from now. Look, I I mean, Seth, it doesn't come that much, you know, closer to Mad Max kind of life. That's true. Like, how could it get worse, right? (laughs) I'll give you my quick wrap because we talked a bit around. AI use cases and where are they? The next year, certainly the next two years, but I think within 2023, with those threshold effects being hit and the, the flipping, uh, as Antonio put it, starting to happen, I think we're going to see radical access to expertise is going to be the breakthrough use case. And that just means you want to talk to a doctor, you can do it anytime you want from anywhere you are on demand, and it'll cost you 1% of what a current doctor costs you. And that may be last to come to the US, but around the world where the, that access doesn't exist in any other form, I think that will be a total game changer. So you have um, you know, doctors, therapists, any sort of professional expert, maybe leaving like accountants aside for a while because they, they do still struggle with math. Um, but I think radical access to expertise is going to be the way that in which this shifts the way that we live. Yeah, I, I, so I agree with all that. Um, uh, you know, I'll add like a few few predictions. Um, so uh, pretty soon, it's going to be really hard to know what's AI and what's real humans on the internet. Um, I think there are going to be OnlyFans girls that are entirely AI generated. <laughs> Um, and they're going to make a lot of money. You're going to see one guy in the basement that's typically a pretty hideous guy who's <laughs> operating um, 50 to 100 thoughts at any given time. There's uh, there, there's a 
image that's going around on Twitter. I'll post it in the chat. But um, <laughs> it's already co pretty compelling that kind of people you can generate with. Uh, Dude, I'm you, you, you. It's always you who gets us canceled every show. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's this. It's the Yarvin reference. It's always something, man. Oh, <laughs> I uh, gotta gotta use my minority privilege, uh, you know, in a way. You know, so. I, uh, so, um, and then, um, and then, um, you know, it, you know, I, I, I really think it's it's gonna be it, it's gonna be like uh, pretty uh, weird uh, pretty soon. Like it's, uh, uh, and, and I think there's it's gonna increase demand for proof of humanity. Um, and I don't know if Elon will do this, but whomever verifies the humans will be able to build a really, really big business. Um, and I think this is a, a chance for uh, some kind of crypto Bitcoin business here where you know, staking becomes a thing that's really useful because uh, you can stake to kind of prove your identity. Um, and, um, and ultimately, like... Um, uh, you know the uh, pressure from uh, what we said. You know the, the way this is going to affect uh, people's earning potential. I think uh, people are going to make a lot of money a lot faster. That's going to create more wealth inequality. I think these companies that are already pretty um, big are going to get a lot bigger. Um, I think uh, some startups will scale up really, really fast. Already seeing that with Jasper and a few other startups. Um, I will just create a new crop of millionaires and billionaires in Silicon Valley. We're going to get a lot more hate than usual. And it's just going to create um, a new sort of political battle. Uh, the copyrights, uh, you know, politics will, will intensify pretty hard. Maybe we'll see regulation uh, towards the, the end of the year. Um, I think, uh, and I think, but generally, like, there's a ton of black bills in this, but generally I'm, like, pretty uh, excited about the future, uh, especially, like, since Nathan gave us some pretty cool white bills. I'm really excited about just being able to find the answers a lot faster, about my computer becoming more intelligent, talking to my applications, being able to use voice and interaction with computers in a much more immersive way is going to be really, really super exciting. Um, I'm also excited about, like, somewhat of a niche topic, which is, like, you know, um, the ability for LLMs to shine light on uh, human cognition in general. Like, can we try to understand how humans learn or study how humans, um, uh, how intelligence work or consciousness work via AI? When, when I was a kid, one of the reasons I was interested in AI, I was actually before getting into computer science and programming, I was going to study cognitive science. I'm really interested in how the uh, he, how the brain works, how consciousness works. We didn't get into that all that much, but part of my resistance to the idea that uh, we're going to scale our way to AGI is that I feel like we're missing a core concept for how the human works. Specifically, I think the hard problem of consciousness, uh, the hard problem of consciousness is that you can have a complete description of a brain or a cognitive system but you can never for sure be able to say whether that system is experiencing something. So you can have a complete description of a bat and how bats use echolocation and everything, but you don't know what is it like to be a bat. Actually, there's a philosophy paper 
called What Is It Like to Be a Bat that I really recommend about this problem. Uh, so I'm excited about AI and how it will generate um, a new discussion in philosophy. Philosophy has been stagnating for the past you know, 50, 100 years. So it'd be interesting to, uh, if they sort of took these models seriously and started studying them. I think a lot of philosophical questions that have been theoretical until now are going to become very practical about what, what makes us human and what makes consciousness and all of that. I think that's a that's a good place to wrap. Uh, guys, uh, there's another Moment of Zen episode, uh, never dull. Uh, uh, there was a, a lot of Zen on here for sure. <laughs> a lot of opposite of Zen too. Thanks for joining. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. And it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. 